letter 10. There was something I forgot to say about being twins. It's how people stare. They can't stop themselves, even though it's rude to stare. But if you can't stop yourself being rude, how is anyone other meant to stop themselves? When me and Scarly first met together, I was staring sidelong in shop windows all day long. Just seeing us in the glass was spooky enough for yours truly. It's no wonder every other pair of eyes on the street boggled as well. By the way, you should know I get muddled sometimes. You probably noticed I say stuff I never meant to say. When I started telling you my side of the story, being sketchy didn't seem so bad. It's cause there's two of me now. One is cleverer, the other one ain't. She's called Jenny. But I will take the penance. I will learn myself how to speak without muddles. From now on, not only will I say not one more French word again, but every time I catch as Jenny whatever saying pointless stuff that makes no sense, I will punch the walls like it's her face. Look! There's cracks where I already begun to mend her half-wit ways. And we ain't even got to the bit where we met the royals yet. By the way, the royals is my word for what turned out to be Scarly's nearest and dearest. Only, don't you start huffing and puffing. Just cause Jenny's got thinking issues, you ain't allowed to say, It's your own default, girl. You should have done less dazzle in your heyday. I will go, you what? Blaming me for being Jenny. Before things turn nasty, I will say, let's leave the sermoning to a priest, shall we? What about you? How would you fare being Jenny whatever your whole life, when you should never have been her in the first place? I'll tell you what, let's just drop the whole thing, shall we? If you don't mind too much, I will proceed with the rest of my side of the story. Where I left it was, me and Scarly was having a good old laugh. And meeting her was the best miracle from heaven I could ever wish for. Even the Reverend Father was mopping tears away as we bolted from his place of worship. We got as far as belly laughing on the pavement outside when I spotted the beanstalker with his snapped-in-two arm. Scarly didn't hardly notice him. Me and her was laughing so hard we felt like puking. Soon as she seen him, though, she goes white like a fish. He shoots off then. We had to sit on a bench. What I found out was, in times gone by, my new sister done something sordid with the beanstalker. It's hard to picture how they done this, cause he's too long and thin like spaghettis. What she told me in so many words was, not only did she do a quickie with this way too long bloke, she got herself preggers. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, tut tut. Getting yourself preggers willy-nilly ain't ideal. 
and all that toshing. But hang on your words. You and me got our bargain signed and sealed, do we not? I don't get on my pulpit if you don't get on yours. Besides, none of this part of the story needs much saying, because it's all a load of pardon my French and nothing to do with my side of the story. Buff! Just so you know, the word buff means I just punched the wall again. And it was a good one. Now there's a cloud of plaster dust in the air around my head. Let that be a lesson to us all, Jenny. Where I was was, Scarley's ex-bloke was a total nutter. He was obsessing ever since he'd done his naughty deeds with her. He was lurking and texting and what have you. Scarley begged the blokes in black to have a go at him. I could have told her that's a waste of breath. They didn't even taser him. Even so, when I heard they didn't bother arresting him neither, I blasphemed a few times and no mistaken. That's when I thought up the best pardon my French ever for Scarley's ten-foot stalker bloke. It made her perk up no end hearing her expo being abused by me. Would you like to know what my abuse was? Only... I dare not repeat what I said here, not unless you think I can be released from my vow of silence. I suppose you will get shirty now. You will go, I can't release you from your vow, Marley. You swore on your holy Bible. This is between you and him, our maker. Amen. And I will go, not so. I will say, him, our maker, might have witnessed my vow. He might even smite me if I spake out loud my French name for Scarley's beanstalker. But the vow I made was not to him, our maker. It was to you, a lowly human. This is a technical point you, of all people, should get. It means you alone can permit me to use French words again. Do you see? So I will be obliged if you would kindly oblige me and grant me a release from my vow. By return of post, if possible. Cause, if gospel be told, it feels cramped and stuffy not having all the words you need to say all the things you need to say. I'll give you a clue, though, shall I? My abusing name for Scarley's beadstalker starts with the letter W, and ends with the letter N. Any guesses? You should have seen her face when I said this foul word out loud. Just hearing me say what her ex really was cleared Scarley's troubles right off her brow. She even managed a smiling act. Did I tell you the bloke's true name yet? He was called Julian or some such, which is Ponzi. I told Scarley I could stab him if she liked. This made her feel even better. It weren't meant, though. I couldn't stab no bloke, even one with a poncy name like Julian. Only there's more ways to swinging cats. So we could learn Julian a lesson, we done a list. Our list started with pushing him off the roof of a car park. That weren't good enough, though. 
so we clipped his privates off and let him jump about, yowling in agony. I felt this might have sorted him, only we carried on. In the end, we locked him in a room full of blokes in black with tasers drawn. This meant justice could be done according to law and order, which, funny enough, ended up being my absolute favourite. Once we had hysterics over the best methods of teaching the beanstalker called Julian, otherwise known as W-N, how to behave, Scarly and me went down the shops. That's when she came up with her balmiest plan ever. She said it would be hilarious if we got everyone staring at us mixed up about who is who. Which is all fine and well, but you and me both know. Soon as I open my big gob, the game is up. Only Scarly weren't granting this. When that girl got it into her brain she wants to be hilarious, there weren't nothing stopping her. She goes, don't be pathetic. It's only a bit of fun. What came next was the loveliest miracle in my side of the story so far. Dead serious, Scarly takes my shoulders in her hands and goes, You must come and live with me. We will meet the family, and not only will we look the same, we will wear the same frocks. Ha ha ha! I don't mind saying I was bolted out of the blue, not by her balmy scheme, but what she just said about me living with her. I needed to hear it said all over again. I asked, did she really mean I could come and live at hers? I can hear her sing-song voice even now, word for word. Course you can, you numpty. She said this in the forecourt of a shopping centre. I gave her a tight hug then. She goes, Not only do you have the strength of a gorilla, you smell like one. This was cruel, but I let it pass. There was too much sister bonding to care about snide comments over my odours. And besides, the miracles that day was coming along in busloads. Ever since we stepped out of the place of worship for all the saints that ever was, I thought I must be in paradise. Only now I seen there was something better than paradise, and you could shop there all you liked. We done H&M, we done Debenhams, we done New Look. We buyed tons of clobber and two scarlet dresses. None of it was thieved. There was so many bags with spoils in, we had to take a cab to get it home. A cab! And when we got to what was going to be our home forevermore, the only word for the dizziness I felt was Scarly's all-time favorite. It was sublime. Picture the French word beginning in F and ending in G that goes right before Scarly's favorite word ever, and you will know the level of sublimeness I felt. One day I will tell you what it was like being home at last before things turned nightmarish. Don't go making me tell you the nightmares first, cause that comes next. If I skipped that far ahead, Jenny would get herself lost again and I would have to vent my fury on something hard. 
what comes before the nightmares is the most awkward bit in our tale. It's the bit where yours truly does her curtsies to the notables. Me and Scarly got ourselves tarted up for the big day, making everything look the same. We wore our same scarlet frocks. It was rude fitting. We had shiny black shoes on. We had the same black tights. We made our tights run in the same places. After we'd done our hair and makeup the same, I told Scarly we must be ready for the royal gala. She had her sly smile on her face then. She goes, Soon as they see us, my nearest and dearest will topple over in euphorics, which sounds like a medical complaint. But Scarly goes, No, it will be laughing and loving all day long. You wait. Well, there was laughing and loving all right, but mark these words. When your sort picture laughing and loving, what you see is a great bash and a wail of a time. That is all wrong. That ain't what happened. Without the help of Louise Gross, we wouldn't have known so much about Charlotte. But even with all that information, I still have my doubts. I don't suppose I'll ever be sure of anything. When I asked Louise why she'd been prepared to help at all, she told me she didn't think the truth had come out. I don't mind saying that whatever really did happen, your theory about it was enough to change my life. Before I met her face to face, Louise had been dealing with her desperation by holding back the tears. I'd heard her struggling to do this during each of our telephone conversations. By the beginning of July 2017, the time had come to discuss the circumstances surrounding Charlotte's death. Your presence in London gave me the perfect excuse to go there. The prospect of seeing you didn't feel like it could really be happening. It was so unlikely, it was terrifying, but I leapt at the opportunity. It was only because I was still employed that I had to justify the journey to London by meeting Louise at her home in Brixton. When she opened the door, I was surprised. I've always had the suspicion that people rarely look like the voices they speak with, in my imagination, Louise was younger. I would never have pictured her with such shortly cropped hair. It followed the contours of her skull. Her face had lines so deep they were like crevices with watery blue eyes. I noticed that the ends of her mouth were pulled down, as if they'd come to rest in the shape of a scowl. Once we were settled in the lounge, she started off by saying she would always be tormented. Not by anything Charlotte had done, but by what Charlotte hadn't done. She told me that after the New Year's party, throughout the month of January, she'd tried to resume contact with Charlotte. 
She called the mobile. She left voicemails. She sent text messages. When Charlotte didn't respond, she resorted to writing emails. She understood well enough that she might be better off leaving Charlotte alone. Each time she tried to get in touch, she feared she might come across as overprotective. But she was concerned. She could sense something was wrong. With hindsight, I could understand why Charlotte might have been too preoccupied to get back in touch with Louise. It would have been difficult for her to cohabit with anyone, I suggested. To live in close proximity with a person like Marley must have been especially challenging. Whether or not Louise agreed with me, I can't say. She didn't react. She was so upset by the thought of what had happened to Charlotte that my mild observations were superfluous at best. Her torment stemmed from a belief that the tragedy of her death might have been averted. She continually told herself that if Charlotte had answered her calls, she would have been able to prevent what went on to happen. She'd been completely unaware of Marley's presence in her life. Having heard nothing from Charlotte, she resolved to drive to Cambridge one day to find out what was going on. The idea Louise had as she drove up the A11 was that she and Charlotte needed to have it out once and for all. She wanted to explain to Charlotte that friendship thrives on communication and withers without it. She imagined herself insisting that if one friend tries to contact the other, there is an absolute need to respond. When it came to it, Louise was going to berate Charlotte for all the neglect she'd shown her one true companion in life. It was dark when she arrived. A frost layered the paving stones leading to Charlotte's door. The lights were on. Louise rang the doorbell. She kept her finger on the buzzer for longer than was necessary. At first, Charlotte declined to answer. When she did open her door, Louise was dumbstruck. None of the anger that had compelled her to drive all the way to Cambridge came out. Charlotte looked too haggard and upset to accuse her over the poor handling of their relationship. She had a man's robe on. Her hair was unbrushed. She had rings under her eyes. She looked pale. Louise could only think of asking what was wrong. Charlotte began to shake her head. You can't be here, she said. You must go. The absurdity of these remarks struck Louise so forcefully that her anger welled up again. In a raised voice, she accused Charlotte of being callous. Who do you think I am? she demanded. You can't just dismiss me as if I don't exist. Each word seemed to cause Charlotte more anguish. Glancing over her shoulder, she urged Louise to speak more quietly. She warned that the neighbor was sensitive. This pandering to the sensibilities of a neighbor gave Louise the pluck she needed to be all the more infuriated. The neighbor, she shouted. What the fuck do I care about the neighbor? It was at this point that another voice rang out from within Charlotte's home. 
It was a female voice with a low, aggressive streak. The voice said something like, Watch your fucking mouth, love, or I'll put a fist in it. Charlotte sighed then. She rolled her eyes. She called over her shoulder, Don't worry, Molly. I'll handle this. Louise was instantly jealous, but knew that she wouldn't be able to articulate what she was feeling. Molly? Who was Molly? The panic in her eyes said it all. This brief three-way exchange at Charlotte's front door was sufficient for her to assume that Charlotte was having a fling with another woman. This woman, wherever she'd come from, was plainly a poor fit. Louise half comforted herself with the notion that this Marley must be another episode in Charlotte's self-destructive career. She decided to leave without saying another word. She turned to go. Despite the low temperatures that night and the fact that she was barefoot, Charlotte caught up with her and kept pace with her. She put her hands on Louise's shoulders to stop her. They slipped on the pavement, almost falling together. Charlotte spoke too quickly. The heat of her breath condensed around her mouth. She seemed oblivious to Louise's emotional hurt. Louise realized then that Charlotte had been drinking. She was slurring her words. It's more complicated than you think, she seemed to be saying. The whole saga could be explained, she insisted, but it couldn't be done there and then. Charlotte wanted to meet with Louise. She wanted this to happen as soon as possible. For Louise, at that moment, no explanation was going to suffice. It was clear what was going on. Her overriding concern was to get back to London and very likely never see Charlotte again. Despite this, and maybe because she was moved by Charlotte's fragility, she coldly stated that they could meet the following day. Charlotte started to remonstrate. The next day was too soon. She needed more time. But there would be no more concessions from Louise. As she got into her car, she told Charlotte to take it or leave it. Charlotte began to negotiate. She seemed genuinely desperate to have an opportunity to speak with Louise about what was going on. She would meet the next day, she said, but only if it was in a public place. There had to be lots of people around. Charlotte had begun to shiver. Louise shut her eyes for a moment. She recalled opening them and looking up at the half-moon as she nodded her assent. The relief in Charlotte's voice still makes Louise bitter even now. They arranged to meet at midday the following day at a cafe they both knew at Liverpool Street Station. By then, Louise knew with some finality that she no longer had the nerve to tolerate Charlotte's liberties. She'd agreed to Charlotte's terms, but wondered if she would go to Liverpool Street. As she drove away, she glimpsed the form of the other woman, silhouetted in the curtains drawn across the living room window. 